0: Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. If you're looking for news, tips, and stories about fishing the Great Lakes, you've come to the right place. And now your host, Chris Larson.
1: Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast. We're at the Greater Niagara Fishing and Outdoor Show. We're with Mark Romanak from Fishing411TV. Mark, thanks for joining the show. Chris,
0: my pleasure. Always always happy to talk,
1: <laughs> especially if it's fishing. Yeah, you've been uh, pretty busy this weekend talking fishing at your booth, but also doing some seminars.
0: We have, and uh, this particular show is special because it has more seminars than any other show I've ever been to. I think it's over 200 seminars total. Uh, obviously, I'm not doing all 200. I'm just one of the seminar speakers. But if you're looking to learn about fishing, you could not pick a better show uh, than the Greater Sport Fishing Expo here in Niagara.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. There's uh, 18 different rooms, and there's seems to be something going on all the time there's seven or eight different seminars going on seemingly at every every moment so the probably the biggest challenge is choosing which one you want to go to during any particular hour
0: well it's a little frustrating for some people because they want to take in as many as possible and you know and frankly you really can't do it what we see is people come all three days of the show just because they want to take in multiple seminars and that tells me that these are the real deal people in New York uh, they love to fish and, uh, and they want to be successful at it, and the best way to do that is to take in some of these seminars and hone your craft, so to speak. Yeah, a lot of experts here,
1: a lot of opportunity to learn from people. Today, with you, we want to talk about tipping, and I guess the question is, is it fifteen or twenty percent?
0: I was going to say you, d- you really don't have to tip me out; do this absolutely for free. But um, twenty is customary. Twenty
1: is customary now. It used to be fifteen. Everybody's got to make a living. We're going to twenty now. We're talking about tipping, tipping a wobbling plug, and it's it's kind of something I, I picked up from your blog and I thought I'd make a great podcast um, tell us a little bit about that
0: well it's kind of an old-school technique you know and if you look at me you can tell I'm a pretty old-school kind of guy and it's something we were doing decades ago and essentially what we would do is we would take a lure that we had confidence in um, in order to get a better scent stream in the water we would tip it with some type of live bait and generally speaking we would use nightcrawler because it's real easy to work with and uh, so a wobbling plug maybe your favorite plug might be a Yakima maglip maybe it's a hot and Maybe it's a wiggle wart, maybe it's another crankbait. But if it's not getting bit, you know, one of the things you can do to improve its action and improve its catchability is to take just a little piece of nightcrawler. I'm talking about a one-inch piece of nightcrawler. And normally we would put it on the front treble hook of that lure. And uh, now when you put it in the water, you get a scent stream. So you've got a natural scent stream in the water. You also have a little wiggler thing there that's kind of just a little bit more enticing, so to speak. And you'd be amazed how often that little tiny thing makes a difference. Some species of fish, like trout, are notorious for this. You can't get them to bite hardware, but if you tip your lure, you can get them to bite it. Walleye are another one that are very notorious for this. Um, If you just can't get walleyes to bite for one reason or another, a little live bait tip on that hook makes all the difference someday. It doesn't work every day, but sometimes it'll make you look like a hero.
1: And why the front treble, not the back one? You can do it
0: both ways, but the front treble is going to be less reluctant to change the action of the bait. Most wobbling plugs are very sensitive to weight. If you put too big a hook on them, you can even ruin the action of them. If you put the, the piece of bait on the back hook, it's very enticing, but it can very easily change the action of it. Plus, I want that fish to get as much of that crank bait in his mouth as possible. I don't want him nipping at the back treble hook and maybe just pulling off the nightcrawler. I want him to eat the whole plug. And the best way to do that is to make him aim for the front of the plug. He's much more likely to get one of those treble hooks caught in his face.
1: And that's one of the concerns I think with doing this is what's a good plug to do this with and is there some plugs that maybe um, you start putting stuff on it they just kind of, they don't work the way they're supposed to. So what's a good Absolutely.
0: Typically I would recommend if you're going to tip your, your plugs, you want a high action plug to start with. You want something that's got a lot of giddy up and wiggle. And uh, we do this a lot with old school plugs like Flatfish would be a classic plug that this would work on. Also some of the newer stuff like the Maglip. Um, the Fat Wiggler would be a good example. If you're a Storm guy, a Wiggle Wart, or a Hottentot, would be a really good choice. If you're a lure Jensen guy, a quick fish would be a great bait that has a lot of action. If you put it tipping you know, onto something with a subtle action, like maybe a rapala stick bait, you're gonna destroy what subtle action the lure has. And so this works best on lures that got a lot of giddy up.
1: What are some of the best situations to use this?
0: Cold water. I mean, invariably, when we're fishing any species in cold water, they're lethargic. Let's face it. Um, Fish are cold-blooded creatures. And uh, when the water's cold, they're not as active. And so tipping can be very, very effective in cool water. And when I describe cold or cool water, anything below 50 degrees. Is typically going to be a good choice and so if we're doing this for trout and salmon we're often targeting them in very cold water and so definitely um, makes a difference if you're doing this for a walleye and you're using a high action bait you might actually be going in a little warmer water than that but it still is effective still gives you that scent stream still gives you that little extra action you can't get without tipping
1: yeah, we talked about some lures that it doesn't work so well for. Are there some situations where you're like, yeah, this just doesn't do much for us?
0: Yeah, if I forget to bring the crawlers. <laughs> and that's pretty, much, uh, that's pretty much a given. But no, actually, it works a lot of the time. works early and late in the year. It works on a variety of baits. Um, it's just one of those things that um, you know, a lot of people have kind of forgotten about. It's a technique. You know, I called it old school. It's mm-hmm. something I learned how to do when I was walleye tournament fishing you know, back in the 80s. Um, but it catches fish just as good, you know, you know, in our modern
1: era. You're talking night crawlers. I come from an ice fishing background, and there's a lot of guys that use minnow heads. Mm-hmm. Basically doing the same thing with our jigging spoons. Do you ever do this with the, with minnow heads? Absolutely.
0: Um, and then what you know, you say a minnow head, and that's exactly what a person needs to understand. If you put a whole minnow on there, you're probably going to destroy the action of the lure. But if you put the minnow on, then just pinch off just the head. Now you've got the scent stream in the water, and you've got just a little bit more flash from that minnow that you would have otherwise, maybe had otherwise. Um, and it works very, very good. I hardly ever put a lure in the water ice fishing It doesn't have a mental head on it
1: yeah it's, it def- definitely adds some flavor for sure so if, if we're using just a little bit of nightcrawler, and that works great how about uh, more Nightcrawler, is that going to work better?
0: Sometimes, you know, you know, I knew you were going to ask this, is it <laughs> if a little is good, a lot must be better. But it ends up what happened is that the Nightcrawler has got too much weight and destroys the action of the lure. And so generally speaking, you know, one to two inches is going to be plenty. If you use the whole Nightcrawler, you're probably going to impede on the action of the lure and it may not be the best scenario. The other thing is you just invited the fish to short bite. You just invited him to bite the crawler and not eat the actual lure. So you're going to get a bite, but it's not going to end up in a hooked or landed fish.
1: So we're talking about using this as um, you know, a way to tip our wobblers, a way to tip our, our stick baits. But another thing that I've seen that you're, you're doing is you're using these baits to get your worm harnesses deeper. Tell us about that. Well, not
0: so much for tipping to get deeper, but you know, the bottom line is the harness doesn't have you know, it doesn't have to go to any particular depth. Basically, if you just put a nightcrawler harness out behind the back of the boat and pulled it, Mm -hmm. you know, you'd be fishing about a foot below the surface. And Mm -hmm. so you have to do something in order to get it down. And there's a multitude of ways that this can, you know, be achieved. It can be done with inline weights. It can be done with diving planers, things like tadpoles. It can be done with lead core line. Heck, if you wanted to, you could put it on a downrigger and do that as well. So there's a lot of options. And it really just depends on what works the best. You know, in this part of the world, you know, we're in New York, everybody here owns a set of downriggers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're very common but in my world in Michigan you don't see downriggers unless a guy's salmon fishing. You know I don't ever see a guy on Lake Erie fishing for Walleye with downriggers. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on where a guy is at and what he has available in order to get those down to presentation.
1: Let's talk about you a little bit. You've got the show and <laughs> then everybody loves to talk about them. Oh yeah. Uh, you got the show fishing four one one. But how did you get started in fishing and doing what you're doing now?
0: Well um Right out of college, I have a degree in fisheries and wildlife management. Right out of college, I was looking for that style of job, biologist type of jobs, that kind of stuff. And it just wasn't happening. Um, I got out of college in 1981. And so if you look back in time, you ever hear of something called affirmative action? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, it was big in those eras, and what it basically boiled down to is is it limited what government could do as far as what employees they could hire. They had to hire a lot of minorities, and they were forced to. Um, The jobs that I was looking at were primarily dominated by white men, and Mm -hmm. so they weren't hiring any white men. They were hiring a lot of women, a lot of Hispanics, a lot of blacks. It was a great opportunity for those races at that time, but I wasn't getting hired. It's basically what it boils down to. I took a job um, working for a nature center as an environmental, you know, interpreter. And I liked that, but it didn't pay very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite honestly, I think I was making like 10 grand a year. I right. mean, I could barely keep the lights on. It was verge of starvation, so to speak. So I needed another form of income. And a buddy of mine came to me and said, well, you love the hunt and fish. He said, why don't you write for them outdoor magazines? And like I never even thought about it, you know, but in college I was pretty good in English, you know, I did pretty good in that kind of stuff. And so anyway, I was kind of dared to try it and I wrote my first article and it was bought by a magazine in Michigan called um, Michigan Outdoors. And I think I made like 60 bucks on it. But back then that meant something to me. And so that one led to the next article and the next article and within a year, I was pretty much writing full time and walked away from the naturalist job and took on the writing career full time. So I found my niche, so to speak. That was really cool because in that era, you know, in the 80s and 90s, people got their information from outdoor magazines. Right. Well, this is different times. People don't read magazines anymore. They don't read newspapers. If people want information, they get it digitally. Mm -hmm. And so in 2007, I could see that the magazine industry was declining seriously. And I was at about the peak of my writing career. And uh, a friend of mine, Mike Avery, who produced a television show, um, and he was a news guy just like you came out of the news industry, um, approached me and said, Mark, I want to do a fishing show, and I want you to host it. And so I jumped on that bandwagon, and that's what got my foot wet in television, and I'm glad I did. Um, Mike talked me to ropes, got us started, and, um, and then a few years down the road, we decided to, you know, to buy him out of the business and move on on our own. But without Mike's assistance in teaching us how to do this, there's no way that I would have been able to make that transition. So that's what led to television and of course television, now we're in the digital world and you know, television leads to YouTube and on-demand and all of those things, podcasts, all this stuff all ties in together. And so it's the same thing I was doing as a magazine writer. I was communicating. I'm mm-hmm. just doing it verbally and digitally instead of, you know, with pen and paper.
1: What's the biggest challenge of doing what you're doing now?
0: Coming up with new things to talk about. Uh, Let's face it, it's repetitive. Um, You know, in the spring of the year, you know, if you're, you know, living in Michigan and you're a walleye fisherman, you want to talk about the Detroit River and you want to talk about jig fishing. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what guys are doing. If it's the fall of the year and you're a walleye guy, you probably want to go to Saginaw Bay and catch some walleyes on crankbaits. That's what guys are doing. How do you put a new spin on a topic you've written about or talked about many, many times? So it's always challenging to make it fresh and, and to keep that freshness. Because you got to remember, just because it's old hat to you doesn't mean the guy that's watching the show it's old hat. It might be the first time you he ever heard about it. Mm-hmm. So keep a fresh approach to it and, um, and keep remembering that not everybody out there is as knowledgeable as what maybe you might be. You need to be able to talk to people but not talk down to them and certainly not talk over their heads. Give them some information that they can use. And that's the focus of our television show is that if you watch it, you ought to be able to go out and duplicate what we did. We're trying to teach people how to do what we did, um, just do it you know, after they watch the television show, and it seems to be working famously.
1: Yeah. Tell me about what the most rewarding part of doing that is for you.
0: It's easy. Um, a show like this, a guy comes up and says he saw the show. Um, he went and did the same thing in the same place, and he caught fish, and he shakes my hand and thanks me. Does it get any better than that? I mean, the other kind of satisfaction I get is, of course, I'm working with my family. And when somebody comes up and they tell me how impressed they are with my son, Jake, you know, and how mature he is and how good a communicator he is, I well up. I mean, literally. I mean, it's hard to beat that. And uh, the nice thing about the fishing industry is it's full of great people. I mean, people that fish and hunt, they're salt of the earth. They're really nice people, and they're willing to share that and you know because they get joy out of it they like to see somebody else get joy out of it
1: what's better in life than that yeah and i want to get back to to you and jake i mean that's pretty cool that you guys spend. I mean, you spend a lot of time oh, together. Boy, I mean, <laughs> you guys uh, really get to do a lot together. And, and what's that like for you, spending as much time with him, doing what you guys do, what you love the most?
0: It's a pretty good experience, and you know, especially for me because I'm set in my ways and I do things for a reason because they work for me. Jake looks at it with a fresh set of eyeballs. Why are we doing it this way? This is better. You know, why don't we do it this way kind of thing? So he's always forcing me to rethink the way I do things, and maybe there is a better way to do that. Frankly, if I didn't have a young person pushing me, I'd probably stay in my old, you know, track record, so to speak. I probably wouldn't reach out and do things. Technology is a big part of it. Let's look around at all the technology that fishermen are associated with nowadays. You know, autopilots and you know, and speed and temperature probes and sonar that's you know high resolution and everything is high technology. If I didn't have Jake coaching me on some of that stuff. I would not be able to stay up to speed on it. There's no way, you know, my 60-year-old brain wouldn't decipher all that nearly as well as his 24-year-old brain does. So he keeps me young, keeps me on the cutting edge, and I really appreciate that. So, um, and plus, I think people identify with a father-son connection, though, they they like that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not all roses. I mean, we have our arguments. I was gonna say,
1: you listen uh, to everything he says and just uh,
0: do it, right? Yeah, I wish it was like that, but it's not. (laughs) But in the end, um, we have a mutual respect. And um, you know, and I need to respect what he's coming where he's coming from. He respects where I'm coming from, and in the end, I think we end up with a, a high quality product that people identify with. There's not many folks that don't feel good about a father-son relationship. You know, we all can identify with that. Yeah. Everybody can identify with that.
1: There's something I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about today. What's that? No, is there anything oh, that, that we didn't uh, touch uh, I'm on? Sorry, that? I misunderstood. Um, no, everything's good. <laughs> I don't know what it would be. Is there something mis- I didn't ask you about that you were like, oh, I don't know? No, to I'm just this.
0: tickled to be here. I mean, you know, it, it, I've been doing this my whole career. I've never really had a real job. I mean, the nature center job that I started in—I guess that was a real job. I had to punch a time clock for that. But my whole life, I've been able to make a comfortable living doing what comes natural, and uh, I feel very, very blessed about that. And for Jake to follow in my footsteps. Um, there's no question that he's going to take over when uh, when my wife Mary and I are ready to retire. So, I mean, that feels really, really good that we built something uh, and he's going to carry the torch. So
1: it's all good, my friend. It's all good. That's awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate
0: it. Really my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. For more information on fishing the Great Lakes, visit our blog at fishhawkelectronics.com.